I've heard some prayers. As you, you hear those prayers, you know that that is how prayer ought to be. That is how, you know, where God is exalted. And my desire then has been that, oh, God, would you make me like that, someone who can pray with intensity and fervency to be a prayer warrior. Uh, what we want to lead us to today is to see how is it that we can be a prayer warrior. Uh, it's important first to define what a prayer warrior means. A prayer warrior is one who is totally dependent on God through prayer. And very important, one who has learned that prayer is not a war against God, against a reluctant God. You're not praying, warring against God who does not want to give, and you have to snatch the very things that you're giving, uh, that, that you want. It's not a war against a reluctant God, but a persistence, an insistence for God's glory. And having known the goodness of the Lord, has learned to align his or her prayers in fulfilling God's purposes. Now, the term prayer warrior may not appear in the Bible, but the, in, the, the very fact of the matter is that, that we want to be able to pray with that intensity, insisting on in God's glory. So I want to draw your attention to the greatest prayer recorded by the greatest prayer warrior who lived, our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 17. So if you will turn with me to John chapter 17. But before we look at that chapter, let me just open in a word of prayer. Pray also that as you hear God's word, that God's word would be real to you and that you are not just a hearer but a doer of God's word. Father, through the preaching of your word, your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, Help us, O oh God, as John would write, that we are able to see the glory of your Son, your only Son, in unfailing love and grace. Help us that as we see his life, as we hear his prayer, as we study what he uh, prayed, that we will align our lives so that we are increasingly formed and found to be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We've been in this, past, in this uh, book for some time now. So, we are in John chapter 17. Now, John 17 is at the end of the upper room ministry. The upper room ministry, we saw, began in chapter 13 with the Passover and after the Passover, the Lord starts to teach them, encourage them, show them. And now we've come to chapter 17, which is the end of the upper room ministry, where he's actually praying for them. And we get to hear the prayer that their Lord prayed. And that's the beauty of this chapter. But before we begin with that chapter, I want to give you four important characteristics of this chapter. Beautiful uniqueness of this chapter. The first one, this is the real Lord's Prayer, not the one in Matthew 6 or Luke 11 where we call the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples. 
That prayer, the Lord could not have prayed because it says, Father, forgive our trespasses as we forgive others. Jesus Christ never, never sinned. So this is the prayer of the Lord. This is like the Holy of Holies, as it were. God communing with God. Jesus praying to the Father. And the second one, that this is the Lord's high priestly prayer. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He is praying as our representative to God. And that's actually uh, uh, just a, a glimpse of what he's doing right now. He's praying on your behalf for you right now, the intercessory prayer that he does with the Father. So that's the second part. And the third one is that the spread. I'm sorry, this prayer is always answered because it's prayed in the will of the Father. It's for the glory of the Father, and this prayer is answered. So we got a good lesson there. But the fourth one, even though I said it's a prayer, it is not a prayer. Very interestingly, the way John puts it, he doesn't use the word prayer. He uses the word speak. In fact, John, who writes to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the very God who came down as man, he, we don't read about the word prayer in John. Now, I know in your English translations, the word prayer is used even in John chapter 17, but if you dig back, the word there is say. The most drastic difference you will see is this narrative that after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that he went up to a mountain and he prayed to the Father. But John very specifically says after that he went to be with himself. And so what am I leading you to, and what is John trying to tell us about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is equal to the Father? He's talking to one as equal to the Father. Jesus is God. And so as he prays this prayer for you and for me, there are such powerful lessons we can draw out of that. And so that is what I want to invite you to in John chapter 17. And this chapter can be divided into three parts. And this is the coloring page for the kids. But we have three parts, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for himself. The first part, he prays for himself. And we'll come to see the second line later. But verses second, let's go back. Verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, and we will see the next line after. But then verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for his church. And that is how we're going to see the three parts that we have in this prayer. So let's first look at John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, where Jesus prays for himself. Let me read to you from verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that he gave me to do, that you gave me to do, sorry. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want you to notice here that the word glory is used in two parts. Verse 1, there is a glory which says, uh, the Son may glorify you. That's the glory on earth in the way he is going to die. This glory is about the most inhuman, most humbling experience of death. And then through that, Jesus is saying, help me to glorify you. Glory through suffering. John later speaks about Peter. Remember the time when Peter, uh, you know, he, he, after the coal of fires, they've had breakfast after, after the resurrection of the Lord, and Peter and, John, uh, and the Lord, it seems like they're taking a stroll by the beach, and John's just following behind, and, and, and there Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. He says, out there, the way you would glorify me through your death. So this glory is about your suffering. It's about the suffering that he's going to go through, the humiliating way that he would die, but that would be your glory. But then you get to verse 5. It says, glory with the Father. That's in heaven. This is how when the work is done, that glory, that this work that I'm going to do on the cross, you'd be satisfied with this work. You would be, um, your righteousness would be met and the need for righteousness is met. Oh God, glorify me in heaven. And, it, and then so verse four, it says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do and therefore the glory. But look at verses two. Verse 2 and verse 3 tells you what the work accomplished. Verse 2 says, you have given him authority over all the flesh. Given him authority over, over all the flesh. flesh. You know what happened in verse chapter 3 of Genesis? When man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their dominion, the right that they had. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, comes and, and claims it through the work that he did on the cross. Now he has authority over all flesh. That is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. So that is one of the work. But verse 3, verse 3 says, He has authority to give eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, the Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Giving of eternal life, proclaiming and manifesting the Father, is the work that Jesus does. So, Eternal life is not just that we have lived without dying. Eternal life is relationship with God. Eternal life is about knowing God, the Father. We'll see in verse 5 where it says that you have, I have manifested your name. Verse 6, sorry. That God would be known to us in the work that the Father does. So the second line in that where he prays for himself, it's about our salvation. What Jesus is praying is for our salvation. This is a prayer that only Jesus could pray. This is the work only Jesus could do. And he says, glorify me through my death and glorify me because of the work that is fulfilled. So let's move on to the second part from verses 6 to 19 and where Jesus prays for his disciples. And this is about our sanctification. So the first part is about what? about our salvation. And now we're going on to 
uh, sanctification. So verses 6, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and they gave, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know the truth uh, that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. That is in us, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. That is about sanctification. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, when they, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, not, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. Keep them. Again, you see that repetitive verse, the word that comes back again and again. Keep them, keep them, keep them from the evil one, and they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So this is about the sanctification. And he begins, so in each of these parts, you will find a special request that Jesus makes to the Father. And in this case, before he makes a request, he says, I have manifested your name to them. And that, my brothers and sisters, is about God being our Father. Jews would never be able to call God their own personal Father. Abraham was their father. They would call father as a nation for God. Jehovah God was the father of the nation, but at a personal level, you and I have the privilege of calling him Abba Father. So he makes that name manifest. And in verse 8, it says, how was that made possible? That was made possible because Jesus gave what? Read in your verse 8. What does it say? What did Jesus give us? Jesus gave us? The word, and they received it, and they have. Uh, Jesus showed us the truth, and they believed. You see, this word is important. It's through the word that He says, "I'm revealing the Father, uh, God is the Father." All right. So, I want us to understand that is still true of us. The, if you need to know about God, you have to turn to His word. There is no other alternative. That is how he did at the beginning with the disciples, and that's how he continues to do to us. So we need to get back to the word if you want to know about a God. If you want to know him as our father. And then he makes two requests. The two requests is keep them safe. The first request is that. And it says, in the Father's name, no, let's go back. In the Father's name, and from the evil one. In the Father's name, and from the evil one. In verse 11, it says, in the Father's name. No one else can claim you as theirs. It's as if there's a stamp being put on you. 
belongs to the Father. What a privilege. He's, Jesus has prayed this, and he prays that you would keep them in your name. In your name. Uh, we were referring to how uh, the devil told God about Job, and he says, you know, I did all that. I took the property. I took the possession, but you did not allow me to touch you. But in 1 John 5, 18, John is saying this. We know that no one who is born of God has a continued practice of sin, but he who is born of God keeps them, and the evil one does not touch him. He might threaten you. He might roar like a lion to try and scare you. But God's word tells you that he cannot touch you. That's the devil cannot touch you. You've been kept in the Father's name. We are the privileged ones. And not just that. We are kept uh, from, uh, from the evil one and, and in the Father's name. But the second one that I wanted to take, take you to is that to keep them sanctified, which is verse 17. You see, there's the, what good is it if you are kept away from something but not kept for something? And that is what Jesus is saying. It's not just that you're kept away from, you know, the evil one, but you are kept for himself, that you belong to Jesus. That, that is what it is, being sanctified. The word sanctified means kept apart. You are a special possession. You belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus has claimed your life for himself. You are now his so that you cannot do what you want to do with your life. You don't, you know, sometimes you watch movies, right? And you do? Okay, that's good. Honest confession. That's good. That's good. All right. And then when the, some scene comes, the husband is sitting there or the wife is sitting there playing with a wedding ring. And so the imagery is already there, right? And they're playing with, should I go through with keeping my covenantal promise to my spouse? Or do I, you know... And then finally the ring comes out and, you know, and then you know it's getting worse. Well, that's movies. When, it, when God says, the Lord says in this case, that you've been sanctified, kept for him, that was a prayer. We are saying we will not play with the wedding ring, our spiritual wedding ring, as it were. There's no opportunity that I'm going to give to sin or to anything. I will not involve myself in spiritual fornication or any such abomination. I am kept for the Lord. I belong to him. I'm sanctified. And how am I sanctified? It says again in verse 17, sanctified by, look at your word, Bible, in truth, by the word, which is truth. Again, it's the word. Brothers and sisters, it's the word. We assume we know God's word. We think that we know God's word. You know, sometimes you do a little Google search. It'll tell you some of the misused Bible verses that you imagined it to be in the Bible. You know, the one on top says, um, God helps those who help themselves. Hezekiah chapter 3, verse 5. There's no Hezekiah. Okay. There's no worse called God helps those who help themselves. But we have heard it so many times, we think it's from the Bible. It is not in the Bible because we haven't read the Bible. We've been sanctified by the word, which is truth. And so I want us to know that we are exclusively kept for 
God. Let me read to you a quote by, by Spurgeon. It says, we can make progress in sound living only as we progress in sound understanding. We can only make progress in sound living, spiritual living, Christian living, Christ-following living, only with sound understanding. And sound understanding comes from God's word. We assume that the word says, and we repeat Genesis 3 all over again every day. We, we make our own choices, and we assume that is what God is saying. That is not what God is saying. It is only through the word that we can be sanctified. We can be kept apart. But verse 18, if you look at verse 18, it tells you why a sanctification is important. Verse 18 says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them to you. I want us to understand our sanctification is the basis of our witness. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters. This is important. If you're not sanctified, you are not a witness to this world. If you're not kept apart from this world, you cannot be like the world to go and witness about God who is not of the world. Your witness is important. It's the basis of the witness to the Lord. This is the evangelical part of the prayer. This is where the word missio is used. And where have you heard the word missio? Missionary. Missionary is the one who is sent. So this is verse 18. And verse 19, this is beautiful again. And the reason, he says, for his sacrifice. I have sanctified myself, Jesus is saying. And in this case, Jesus is saying, I've set myself apart. But there is another extension to that verse, to that word, because he's saying, I have, I, I'm setting myself apart as a sacrifice. We get that from Deuteronomy that Jesus' sacrifice becomes our basis for sanctification, that we would be set apart. And so you have the sacrifice, the sanctification, sorry, the prayer of sanctification that Jesus prays for you and I, and that we would live for his glory. But then we also look at the third part, verses 20 to 26. Jesus prays, for the church, and this is the part that speaks about the glorification of the saints, verses 20 to 26. The first one, Jesus prays for himself, and what did that prayer include? Pray for your salvation. And the second part where he prays for his disciples, and that part included what? Sanctification. And now he prays for the church because he's going to pray not just for the disciples who were there at that time, but for those who would believe in the word that the disciples would go and preach about Jesus Christ. And that's you and I. As he's praying, he prays here for our glorification. So I'm going to read to you from verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, l l listen to that word come up now, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that I may be one, that they may be one, sorry, even as we are one, 
I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is about the glory. I want you to understand what John is saying. He, in all of the gospel narratives, John is the one who writes most about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than half the time he's talking about have the time compared to the other gospel writers. He writes about the glory. You see, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, begotten uh, full of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now in, um, in chapter 12, verse 41, he's speaking about glory again. He, he compares what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, of the glory that he saw of God as the glory of Jesus Christ. So every visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament is actually the glory as seen of the Son. It is Jesus who makes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who makes God visible. He makes him manifest to us. And so we see that. But now in verse 22, listen to this. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. What? It says the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. And you've got to ask yourself that question. What does that mean? Like how, how is it that we have received the glory that Jesus has received? And, and, and very specifically, he says in verse 23, it's going to be through our unity. Through our unity, the God would show his glory to this world. Remember how earlier in chapter 13 when we began the, um, the upper room ministry, he says, they will know that you are mine by your love. There's this coming together as one. This unity that we have is too precious because it's through this the world gets to know whose you are. And he prays this in two ways. In verse 21, be one in God. It says that the world may know that Jesus is the only way to the Father and Christ the very Son of God. That's verse 21. That we would be one in God. Our unity is not because of commonality. Our unity is not because I like to sing. No, I, I like to sing, but I can't sing, but that's a different thing. It's, not, it's none of these similarities, not because I like to hang out with you know, all of us, we have same thinking. Our unity is in God. God's the one that unites us. It's in unity in God. But verse 22, that we would be one with each other, that the world may know that the love that exists in the Father through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ is evidenced in us. That as we love each other, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this really, really, really careful. That 
it's through our unity, through our oneness, as we united in God, and as we come together as one, that God is glorified in us. And so you've got to ask the question, what should our response be? Jesus prays for himself, for our, and in that we see our salvation. Jesus prays for his disciples, and there we see that he prays for our sanctification. And Jesus prays for the church, and that we see that he prays for our glorification, that one day we'll be gathered up in glory. That'll be the end result of all of those things. And, and praise God, his prayers are answered. But we have a response. Uh, the response, you would say, yes, it's gratitude, thankfulness, and, and that's great. But listen to me, uh, gratitude without action is, uh, is just a whim. It's, it's harmless. It is, it is of no use. Gratitude that does not act is of no good. If, somebody, if my wife were to say, I love you, and she doesn't show me love, it's no love. It's not just words. It's more than that. And so uh, gratitude, therefore, must have legs. So what should our response be? Though we are committed to be like a prayer warrior ourselves, that if, if we are saying for three reasons, that if you are convinced that, that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we are going to be like him, and that we are convinced that God is our Father, and that we are concerned that we are in a war as a Christian. Three reasons I want to give you why you got to be a prayer warrior. You are not living on someone else's borrowed prayer. God invites you to pray just like his son prayed to him. You can be the prayer warrior. And so we don't stand apart and say, ask someone else. We do ask someone else to pray because that's a corporate way we come together where two or three are gathered. We get that. But if you want to, um, um, you know, what's that when you uh, send your jobs off, offshore, offshoring of your prayer or have someone else pray so that you don't. Outsource, yeah, that's a word, right. That's a word, thank you. If you outsource your prayer, you are the ones, I'm the ones who is missing out the most. We, we have approached prayer as one saying that this God will not give to me if I approach him. No, that's the devil's lie. That's the devil's lie. If God is your father, if you saying, I want to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ, and if I know that if I don't pray, I'm in a war, I'm in a battle against the spiritual forces, I got to get on my knees. Because the weakest Christian is the strongest on his knees. When he prays fervently, when he prays to say that this God is a God who ex is excited to answer the prayer of his children. We have as a church seen examples of so many prayers being answered. I, I want to encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, that we would be a church that will pray together, a church that will say, oh, let's come together and, and seek uh, from our Father's hand. Three reasons that we found in the prayer that Jesus prayed. One is salvation. We have around us so many who are going to eternity without Christ. We have people in our friend circle, our neighbors, our colleagues, our family members who are going to perish without Jesus Christ. Can we pray for them fervently? Salvation. 
Second, sanctification, that we will be kept apart. Oh, that we will resist the devil. We will flee from lust. We will say no. We would have a holy abhorrence to sin. We will say no, no to sin, and yes to God. We will flee to God and not choose sin over God. Oh, that we will be sanctified, kept apart for him, so that the world will know what's so different about him, what's so different about her. It's because he, she belongs to the one who is not of this world, but who came to this world to die for those very ones that we want to witness to, that Jesus Christ is God. He is God. Oh, that our lives would be that powerful magnets for the cause of Christ. And pray that through our lives we would glorify the only one who is worth to be glorified. We are not, uh, we are earthen vessels that will be soon crushed with greatness if we take it upon ourselves. We are, we are pots of clay that will crush if we feed ourselves and fill ourselves with the husks of this world. We say, give, give, and we keep taking and taking and taking and make a life of us to ourselves, a selfish life. This will crush you because we are not designed for greatness. Only God is worth the glory that you can ever give. So let our lives be ones that give some glory. Let our prayers be convinced of this one thing, that God is God who is there, who says, I will fulfill my will and my purposes. That you align yourself, you, I, coming together, aligning ourselves to say, oh God, I want to be part of this great work that you're doing, the purposes that you have for this world, that I want to come alongside. I will, I will commit to pray and to fervently pray, to seek your face, that you and I would be the prayer warriors this world is lacking. Our community is lacking. So that we are not looking for someone else to pray for us, but we have this access given by God himself through the death of your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, an access that's made through the throne of grace. So let us pray. Could you stand up as I pray for all of us and... and um, I want us to take some time to commit ourselves and, and to say, oh Lord, would you, would you make me like your son, even in this area of prayer? Father God, we, we thank you for your son. What a beautiful, wonderful, majestic person we have come to know in Jesus Christ. His every aspect of his life is just so phenomenally beautiful. We have come to adore him. We have come to love him. We have come to give up ourselves to him. And so, Father, in, in this area of prayer where we have so fallen down and so failed you this access that you've given this this not just a season pass that we have but a lifetime pass that we have as an entrance to the very throne room we we we, we come oh god together as your people to say 
that we will be the prayer warriors. We'll be the ones who will pray for the salvation of ones who need to know you. We will pray for the sanctification of your saints, and we pray that you'll be glorified as we come united in the name of your Son, in the name of God, as we come together as one, that the world is able to see that even in these dark times, as it seems like the darkness is increasingly becoming, uh, it, it's overwhelming, but we, we, we know that you're the victorious one, that light cannot be comprehended, light cannot be overwhelmed by darkness. So we come in the matchless, mighty, and all-worthy name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated.